Today on the show, we present you with four short tales of terror, but only three of them are true. Have you learned enough from me to be able to spot a fake? Well, this episode will test your skills. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Killing Miss and Hidden. I'm your old buddy Brad, and this is it. The end. Well, the end for now. I mean, my doctors need me to take some time away from my mental health, so so this is the end of, of the podcast. Until it's not. But we'll discuss that more at the end of the episode. I, I figured we need to do something fun so we have an enjoyable time together. So we're going to do three truths and a lie in true crime format. I'll tell you four stories, and you have to guess which one is completely made up. It's almost interactive. How neat. All right, well, let's not delay this fun any longer. Here we go. Tonda Ansley, in July of 2002, was living her life... As an average middle-aged woman in Hamilton, Ohio, when she decided to shoot her boss slash landlord in the head multiple times outside in full public view for no obvious reason. Now, by all accounts, she had a good relationship with her boss. She wasn't behind on her rent. She didn't really have any financial difficulties to speak of. When 911 was called, she calmly sat down and waited by the corpse she had just made. She was very compliant to the responding officers and seemed relatively calm, but, you know, with a wave of anxiety moving through her. When Tonda was placed in an interrogation room, she freely waived her rights and told her story. And her story was she was being sucked each night into a simulation. She was being forced to live a second life in her dreams against her will. It was never clear to her who was doing it. You know, the government or aliens or some sort of shadow research organization. But it was her belief that she was being drugged at night and forcibly taken to a facility where she would be inserted into the simulated world. After months upon months of this occurring, she was no longer certain when she was in the real world, and when she was in the simulated world. And the pressure of the situation really began to wear on her. So she determined that if she took an extreme act in the simulation, that would probably keep them from forcing her to participate in it. And that's exactly what she decided to do on that infamous summer morning. She murdered her boss-slash-friend in a desperate attempt to free herself from the simulation. In fact, it was reported that she had a hit list of people she was convinced would disrupt the simulation enough that she would be forced to be removed from it. So we've got a crime where there's never a question about what happened. The only question is really about why. And Tanya's story didn't help detectives answer that question. Prosecutors didn't know what was going on either, but they couldn't let this blatant murder, you know, 
go unpunished. So the burden of figuring this out fell on her defense attorney, and he managed to find a way to answer it. He used what is now known as the Matrix defense. Same for that movie franchise you may have heard of, you know, starred Keanu Reeves. So what he chose to do was build an insanity defense around this mind-bending movie concept. He argued that Tiny didn't want to kill her boss. She didn't want to kill anyone, but she didn't know when she was in real life and when she was in the simulation or the Matrix. It was her belief that she was in the simulation when she committed this crime. So to Tiny, she wasn't killing another person. She wasn't killing her boss. She was killing a piece of computer code. You know, it's, it was no different than shooting a video game character, at least in her mind. And she recognized what she did was wrong, but not until after the fact, not until she realized that she was not in the simulation when she committed this act, she was in the real world. But when she pulled that trigger, she didn't know she was shooting at a human being. Amazingly, at least to me, this defense worked. She was found not guilty by reason of insanity. She was confined to the Moritz Forensic Unit of a local hospital. Her treatment has apparently been going very well. She's on a collection of medications that make her safer, according to her psychiatrist. And they believe that if she stays on these drugs, she could live life in society without being a threat. But there's been incidents where she's kind of gone off her meds and uh, regressed. This defense is now known as the Matrix Defense. And, and like I kind of alluded to, it's essentially an insanity defense with extra steps. It's been used just a small handful of times in other cases. Only one other time successfully that I could find, and that was in California. Legal scholars point out that this is kind of an extension of the taxi driver defense used by John Hinckley after he attempted to assassinate President Ronald Reagan. Because both the taxi defense or taxi driver defense and the Matrix defense involve a blending of reality with fantasy. So that's our first story, the Matrix defense. What do you think? We can't have an episode that's being released on Halloween without some sort of Halloween related story, right? So this is the story of what's known as the 1962 Halloween murders or the 1962 Halloween massacre. There's a famous or infamous picture from this event you can find online. It's a black and white photo of something like six, 15, 16 people uh, sitting around in masks, you know, posing for the camera, obviously. And if you've ever looked at Halloween costumes from the 50s and 60s, they are legit terrifying. Like, they did not mess around with Halloween back in the day. Go, go look up any child's costume from this, this time period, and you will be terrified. 
we now regarding the story we don't know how many people uh, let me take a step back this event occurred at a party a halloween party for adults only adults only costume party all right we don't know how many folks were at the party precisely again in the picture we see about 16 people it's believed there were a few more that weren't in the picture plus somebody took the picture so there may have been roughly 20-ish people at this party it takes place in chicago on obviously halloween night and it takes place in a nicer part of town in Chicago. Uh, for jokes and yucks, they were kind of spending the night uh, pulling pranks on each other, trying to scare each other, you know, jumping out of closet doors, turning off the lights, just silly little things to add to the atmosphere of the evening. Now, apparently, during all of these shenanigans, someone locked the front door and the back door, and several of the windows. And then this party turned into a Scream movie, okay? Now, everyone's masked, everyone's in their costumes, and this dude, I'm assuming it's a dude from the way this plays out, would choose one member of the party and surprise them by, you know, jumping out of a closet, but he did so while holding a kitchen knife, and he would slip that blade right in their back multiple times. And, you know, because it's a party, there's music going on, there's lots of talking, some folks are dancing, you're periodically getting the lights turned off and people screaming as they get scared and all that. So there's a ton of commotion going on that this dude is able to get away with this not once, not twice, but seven times. And there's evidence to suggest that as he's stabbing from behind, he's choking them around the neck. Some of the bodies had, you know, marks suggesting that they were being strangled. So obviously this, it took a while for folks to catch on. What this dude was doing was he was trying to target the women, weaker, he was stronger, uh, and he would pull them into closets with him and leave the body there when he was done. Or he would pull, he pulled at least one body into the basement. He, he killed them on the basement stairs and let them fall down into the basement. But eventually, I mean, he killed seven people. There's only 20-something at this party, and people are starting to notice something ain't right when eventually someone tries to pull a jump scare and opens up the wrong closet door and finds a body. Well, when this happened, all heck broke loose. Folks were scrambling to get out of the house like rats abandoning a sinking ship. When they found the doors locked, they utterly panicked. You know, they weren't thinking that they could unlock them as well. It was, we got to get out of here, turn the knob. Oh my God, it's locked. So it, I mean, from what I understand from reading the police reports and the witness statements, it's folks are climbing out of windows. They're getting out of there any way they can. It's, it's just short of them throwing furniture through windows to get out. 
and they're panicked. The folks that live close by just ran home. Uh, you know, the other folks that were a ways away got in their car and drove home. And, you know, to their credit, all of them called the police. All of them called 911 or whatever. Uh, the homeowners who are hosting the party, they too called 911. But by the time police get there, their crime scene is a total mess because you have this one body that's fallen out of the closet and it's been trampled upon. The blood from the body has gotten everywhere. It's just, you know, it's it's not a very well-preserved crime scene. And in the attempt to get out of there, there's some reports that like other closet doors were open because people who didn't live there didn't know what all the doors did. And so there may have been more than just the one body laying out on the floor. There may have been two or three that people were stepping over or stepping on. Now, of course, the police, you know, they've got to talk to everybody involved. So they go visit everyone and nobody knows who did this. And it's, it's, you know, there's no information they have to work with. And it's frustrating because everybody's in mass and so nobody knew who was doing what. Or they, there was confusion about who was doing what is a better way of putting it. Most people had blood on them because they, you know, ran into the bodies. So they have blood on their shoes. Maybe some of it splashed up on the bottom of their costumes and all that. Uh, but they're, you know, police really just couldn't make heads of tails of what happened. The autopsies that were performed indicated the same manner of death for all seven victims. Multiple knife wounds in the back. Uh, like I said, a couple of the victims, it looked like they were being held in a really tight chokehold. Uh, you know, one arm across the throat while the other one was stabbing. And so they believed there was, you know, they noticed that there was some strangulation going on. And the knife wounds were common or were similar to that of just a common kitchen knife. You know, just the basic sharp cutting knife that you would have in your house. There wasn't anything remarkable about it. It wasn't serrated. And it could never be found. The murder weapon was never found at all. And, you know, they they looked at the the cutlery that all the attendees had, and none of them seemed unusual. None of them had any blood on them or anything like that. They didn't stand out one way or the other. And that was kind of it. Police hit a dead end and didn't know what to do. So the case remains unsolved to this day. Now, if you go look at that picture I talked about, there's one man who's wearing, who stands out a little bit because he, he's wearing a black mask of something. I couldn't, couldn't tell from the picture what he's supposed to be. Everybody else is wearing lighter masks. And so... There's lots of theories online that the dude in the black mask is the killer, but there's no evidence that I'm aware of that supports this theory. He just stands out more because of the color of his mask. 
there's also some speculation that it wasn't one of the party goers who did this, that somebody snuck into the house in costume after the party began and started the killing. Again, no evidence for this. And that one really strikes me as untrue because that really is a Hollywood style, you know, mass murder horror movie. Because of this horrific massacre occurring in a well-off part of Chicago and a part of Chicago that's believed to be or was believed to be safe at the time, the police, since they couldn't get anywhere in finding a good lead, just kind of attempted to bury this case. And sources say that if you go down to the CPT today, they aren't real cooperative in helping you research it or uh, even talking about it. It's just, it's kind of a badge of dishonor that they try to hide. And that's kind of where this one ends. So there's your fun, spooky Halloween murder story for you. Up next, we've got a really strange one. So it, this one occurs in Japan. And as you may or may not know, in Japan, there's kind of a problem with peeping toms. Um, like to the extent that on train cars, they have designated certain cars as women's only. And if you buy a cell phone in Japan, the camera app you can't silence. It makes a noise whenever you take a picture. Solely so people around you know that you are taking a picture of something. Now, this story goes back a little ways to 1989. And a female school teacher was... Uh, apparently, her she was required to live in a boarding house at the school. And this boarding house was not fully up to date on amenities. So to use the potty, you had to go to what was called a squat toilet. And this was outside, very old-fashioned. And basically what it was is you have a toilet seat built onto a hole in the ground and that's you would squat over that to do your business the pipe underneath it was kind of u-shaped and the other part of the u would typically be covered by a cement cap or uh, something like a manhole cover along those lines and that was the end where you know it was cleaned out so basically, this is just the Japanese version of an outhouse. So this teacher, after conducting her business, for some reason decided to look down in the hole. I know this sounds gross, like the beginning of some bizarre family guy cutaway scene. But she did. And in doing so, she happens to notice that there's an unusually nice brown leather shoe at the bottom of the hole. Finding this odd, her curiosity is sparked, and she decides to go open up the other side of this toilet 
to see if there's anything else odd in there. When she gets to the other side, the concrete cap is on there, but it's not secured. It's like somebody just kind of tossed it back on. So she's able to pry it open. And when she gets it fully open, she finds a man. A fellow by the name of Naoyuki, 26 years old. He's laying on his back at the bottom of the pipe. He was shirtless and shoeless and covered in what we will kindly call filth. He was also not responsive. The school teacher called the police who came to remove the corpse. Now, they had great difficulty in removing the corpse because this pipe is narrow. It's not designed for people, for people to climb into. When they got the body out, they did an autopsy and it revealed that Naoyuki had died from a combination of hypothermia and pressure on his chest. As you can imagine, these sorts of facilities are not meant to double as napping spots, and Nayuki had apparently squeezed his way down this pipe and under the kind of concrete divide with his head looking up the part with the toilet seat on it, and he had tucked his knees for some reason under the barrier, up against his belly and his chest. In, in a very, you know, this was very tight. He was very cramped. And so that's what made the breathing so difficult. Now, what's odd is, again, we have that brown leather shoe. Well, it was placed on his face. That's where they found it resting. On top of that, he was shirtless. But his shirt was folded neatly and was sitting on his upper chest. Police looked and they found his other shoe on the bed of a river some distance away from where Naoki's body was found. But his vehicle was close to the scene. And in fact, the keys were still in the ignition. So this really was odd all the way around. But police decided to close this case rather quickly concluding that Naoki was a peeping Tom with a, shall we say, very unique fetish. This conclusion absolutely outraged Naoki's friends and family and many other members of the community because this young man was really seen as an upstanding citizen. He was involved in many social clubs and was just generally well-liked. And they said, you know, he would not engage in such a shameful act. You need to look at this from the perspective of foul play. In fact, over 4,000 local residents signed a petition asking police to reopen their investigation. But they refused to do so. In fairness to the police, there were no signs of trauma on Naoki's body. So you wouldn't look at this. I mean, it's not like he had stab wounds. It's not like his throat had been crushed, right? So you get why with the culture of peeping Tom's being a problem, him being found 
in a peeping position with no obvious trauma to his body, they would say, yeah, he's just kind of a weirdo. But there's there are there's some evidence that supports a theory of foul play. First of all, that pipe, it was only 14 inches wide. Naoki's shoulders were just over 16 inches wide. So that would mean he had to know he was crawling to his death to enter this pipe. Because again, we're talking U-shaped, right? So he climbs, you know, he has to squeeze down it head first, get to the bend in it, push his way through that somehow, get into his position that he wanted to be, knowing that he couldn't go forward any further because the ceramic seat on top is bolted down and it's way too small an opening for him to fit through. And there's absolutely no way he would be able to move backwards up the pipe the way he came in. Second problem is, why would Naoki have left a shoe in the river and then carried the second shoe into the pipe? This just doesn't add up. Along with him taking his shirt off and then neatly folding it. If he didn't want to get his shirt dirty... Why even bring it into the pipe? It just doesn't make sense. Also, the cause of death is a bit unusual. See, people have died in similar situations. You know, falling into a septic tank is, is not unheard of. Well, in those situations, the people who die do it either from drowning or from breathing in toxic fumes. Either manner of death would have killed Naoki much more quickly than hypothermia. And it would have killed him much more quickly than the breathing problems he was having from being squeezed in there. Another bit of wackiness is Naoki had been dead for two days when he was discovered. Now, this is important because part of the police's theory was that Naoki had a crush on this school teacher. Because when they talked to residents in the area, it was well known that they were friends. Nothing more than friends, but they were friends. And what makes this timing strange is... Naoki knew or likely should have known that the school teacher was going to be out of town when he would have entered the pipe. So if he was interested in being a perv and was interested in directing his perviness towards the school teacher, why would he crawl on the pipe when he knows she's going to be out of town for at least two more days? Now, there's this really odd theory, but it's a very popular theory with the residents of this area in Japan. See, Naoki was politically active, and he had supported a candidate for mayor for a spell until he learned that this dude was corrupt. 
Specifically, he was buying votes to ensure that he would win. And he did win. Well, this made Naoki really upset because he thought this fella was, you know, above all that, that he was a good guy, that he would do good things. And seeing him being willing to buy votes made Naoki think, well, if you can be, if you can engage in this activity, how easy would it, is it going to be for people to buy you? And so Naoki became an outspoken critic of the mayor. Allegedly, five days before his death, Naoki was performing in a local club with his punk band. He debuted this new song that night, which just tore into the mayor, as well as all the people who were too stupid to have not voted for him, or to have voted for him. I didn't phrase that very well. He went after the people that were stupid enough to vote for him. That's what I meant. And he ends the song by smashing his guitar on stage. When the set was over, the club closed down, and there are scattered reports, inconsistent reports, that a group of men followed Naoki to his car and forced him to get in his vehicle as they joined him and pressured him to drive to the location where his vehicle was found. The theory then goes that he was suffocated or knocked out before being forced into the pipe. They removed his shoes and shirt to make the situation all that less comfortable for him. It's believed that when Naoki awoke from being knocked out, he was freezing, and so he pulled his knees up to his chest in an effort to preserve as much body heat as possible. On top of all this, it's believed that the mayor was actually behind this. He supposedly told the police the Peeping Tom theory, that Naoki was obsessed with the school teacher. The investigation was very rushed. It was very sloppy. And during the course of collecting evidence and witness statements and whatnot, a lot of crap was lost. It can't be found today. The medical examiner also resigned immediately after releasing his findings on this case. So, did the mayor strike back at Naoki for his scathing political criticisms? We don't know because the police have never reopened the case and officially Naoki died in this very shameful way, though many, many people in the area refuse to believe this to be the truth. So you got your Halloween story and now you've got your super gross story. We got one more to go. Let's get to it. Our last story of the bunch is a writer who goes missing in a ghost town. So Keith was this fellow. He was a writer from Chicago, Illinois. Um, 49 years old, married, had two children, had a great job that supported his family quite nicely. But secretly, Keith wanted to be a writer. He wanted to chase that great old American dream of the perfect American novel, right? So 
he decided he was going to make this dream a reality. Somehow, in a move that is totally unimaginable in today's world, Keith managed to secure a three-month sabbatical from his job and get permission from his wife to abandon or, or permission from his wife to leave the family for three months. He did this because he felt like he needed inspiration to be able to write this book. And the place he was going to for this inspiration was Silver Plume, Colorado. Now, at this time, Silver Plume was essentially a ghost town. It was a former mining town that was slowly fading off the map, but there was still some life left in the village. The KP Cafe remained opened and served as the town's kind of social center. It was run by a fellow named Ted Parker, and Ted and Keith became quick friends. Ted also happened to own the only bookstore in town. Now, Ted was eager to show Keith around, and Keith was really interested in hiking a lot of the mountains in the area for two reasons. Number one, he was fat, so he wanted to lose weight, <laughs> to be blunt about it. And number two, he was like really scared of heights. And so he was hoping that the more he hiked these mountains and these hills, the more he could get over that fear. Well, I don't know how well the anxiety part of this worked out because according to Ted, every time they took a hike up a mountaintop, they would have to stop about halfway because Keith would have a panic attack and Ted would have to lead them back down to town. Now, again, this town was mostly abandoned at this point, and so Keith was able to get an apartment that had been built into a small church that had long been abandoned. And he spent most of his time at Ted's bookstore with his computer trying to work on his novel. But after only a few days there, Keith realized, like, he had some serious writer's block. So he started going on more hikes with Ted. He started going on hikes alone, all in an effort to, you know, continue getting in shape, but hoping that the scenery and the, you know, the, the, the air and just the beauty that he was living in during these three months would, you know, inspire him, would jog his mind in some way. There was a, there, this town had a lot of legends. Um, there were several people who died in unusual ways. And there was a belief that this town was cursed. The one legend that really grasped Keith's attention was about a dude named Tom Young, who was a former resident of Silver Plume. And Tom kind of had been Keith before Keith was Keith, if that makes any sense. Uh, Tom had moved to Silver Plume wanting a change in life. He came alone with just his dog and a backpack, essentially. And, you know, he decided that he was going to live in the small mining community. He was going to spend his days hiking and hunting and being an outdoorsman and all that. Well, one day, Tom just disappeared. 
And it was odd because he didn't take his dog with him. And he had been going on and on and on about this trip to Europe that he had been saving up for. And he had this really, I don't know the right word for it, but just he had a nice collection of extremely rare and valuable books. And so no one understood, you know, to them it was, well, Tom must have gone hiking and got lost. That's the only thing that made any sense. But they couldn't find him. And, you know, a man just doesn't leave his dog behind. That was weird. But several months later, two hunters were out in these same woods that, that Tom went into, and they found a skeleton that had several holes through the skull and a rusty gun sitting next to the the remains. On autopsy, he was able to confirm that the body was Tom's and that he had died from multiple gunshot wounds to the head. The official cause of death, suicide. This was despite all the evidence that Tom was happy with his life. However, no local residents really believed that Tom killed himself. They thought Tom was murdered. Because he learned something that they wouldn't learn for several more years. There was a nearby government nuclear weapon development facility that had been illegally dumping hazardous waste into the abandoned mine. And so they thought he saw something he shouldn't have, and some no-good folks from the government put a few bullets in his head. Well, this story just inspired Keith. This is what he needed to write his book. And he just went to town on it. He was feasting. But he felt to do his story justice, he really needed to see where Tom lived and where Tom died. Now, the first one is easy enough because, again, with this town shrinking, the, the house Tom had stayed in was basically undisturbed. No one had ever claimed out his belongings. Even his collection of rare books was still there. And so Keith got to poke around that, and he got to kind of get a feeling for how Tom lived his days. But he insisted on visiting the spot where Tom was found dead. And so he went and spoke with his buddy Ted, and he said, look, I'm going to go hiking out here. Ted showed him on the map where the body was found. Uh, he said, I'm going to go hiking out here. And he kind of jokingly said, if I'm not back in a couple of days, you know, send search and rescue. So Ted kind of laughed it off, didn't think anything about it. Now, what was kind of odd about this event was Keith decided to leave on this hike at 4.30 in the afternoon. So that's pretty late in the day. You know, you can't make a lot of progress when the sun's so low in the sky. And as you're probably guessing, Keith didn't return in a few days. So Ted did call search and rescue. Uh, the sheriff commenced what's considered one of the largest manhunts in the history of Colorado. 
He relied on hundreds of volunteers and skilled professionals. Uh, he also had sniffer dogs and airplanes as disposal. But despite spending hundreds of hours searching over the key course of a, a week or so, the search was called off. Shortly after the search was called off, Ted decided to look at the book that Keith had been working on. And it seemed odd when Ted read it. So this was kind of the last passage that Keith had written before he went missing. And it read, and I'm quoting here, Guy Gypsum, who is the name of the main character in this book. Guy Gypsum changed into some hiking boots and donned a heavy flannel shirt. He understood it all now and his motivations. Guy closed the door and walked towards the lush, shadowless Colorado forests above. And that's it. Keith has never been found to this day. No evidence of Keith has ever been found. He just simply vanished in these woods. All right, those are our four stories. So what do you think? Which one is the lie? Is there really such a thing as a matrix defense? Was the Halloween massacre a made-up story for the season? Is the Peeping Tom tale just a little too strange to be accepted? Or did our writer from the ghost town go missing, missing 411 style? I'll give you a moment to think, to lock in your answers. Really want you to make sure you can figure out which one of these stories is cut from a fabric of lies. Hopefully it's not too easy. I'll be ashamed if everybody emails me and says they got it right. All right, you ready? You want to know the answer? The lie was... The Halloween Massacre. No such event occurred, even though it's an internet uh, urban legend that gets passed around a good bit. All right, um, let me get to the business side of things, the future of the podcast, okay? Now, all this is very fluid. All of it really depends on how well things go for me, right? As you all know, I'm doing this at advice of doctors to try to get my mental health back to where it needs to be. So here's my plan. Again, very fluid plan. I want to take a sabbatical until January, so two months off. That's two months of extra healing. This works out nicely because my kids' sports have ended. I'm going to have two months without the pressure of doing this podcast. And, you know, work kind of tends to slow down this time of year, really once Thanksgiving hits. So I'm hoping that I can return in 2024 completely refreshed. Now, one thing I'm thinking about is stepping away from doing weekly episodes and maybe doing every other week or twice a month so there's less pressure on me to research and write and record and edit and all that good stuff every week. 
uh, again, I've timed myself and a, a lot of times that's 15 hours of work. So, you know, that's 68 plus hours a month. If I can cut that in half, that will make things a lot easier. Now, of course, I say all this, but I reserve the right to change my mind, okay? Again, fluid situation. I also reserve the right, if I feel so inspired, to release a random podcast episode during these two months. I don't know that I will. I don't have any plans to do so. But should something catch my eye and I want to do it, I may pop up on your radar at random times. Um, you know, honestly, I don't know that I will because, you know, this is supposed to be like, you know, when a wealthy family in Victoria, England decided they needed to take a vacation to, you know, get over their tuberculosis or their uh, 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 ill humors. And so they would go to some exotic part of the world for eight months. That's kind of what I'm trying to do here, but it may happen. During this time, though, I don't plan on being totally, totally gone. One thing I'm interested in doing and trying out is posting some content on TikTok and Instagram. Doing mini mysteries, because you can do like three-minute videos. And so I think that'll be fun because, you know, I don't have to research those in depth. I can obviously record them in much less time than 15 hours. Um, and I can reach some cases where there's not really enough meat on the bone where I could justify a full episode on this podcast. And, you know, I mean, this, think of this, you know, think of this as a little kiss from Brad if you get lonely during these times, okay? And if things go well, maybe I'll turn into one of those TikTok streamers who gets gifted money from people who watch him tell stories. That, that would be neat, right? Uh, I may also do kind of the podcast guest circuit during this time. That's pretty low effort because I'm just showing up and commenting on stories. If I do that, I'll post links to every episode I'm on so y'all will be in the know. Um, you know, having said that, everything that's active right now will remain active. Uh, you know, my email address will still work. The Facebook page will stay up. Instagram will stay up. You know, just all that jazz. And again, I'm going to stress that this is my plan. If I feel super, you know, after Thanksgiving, maybe I'll start up episodes in December. If I'm still feeling crappy come March, maybe I don't start back up for six months, okay? Uh, and there is the legitimate possibility that this is the last episode ever. I don't want it. I think it's unlikely, but it is a possible outcome. So hopefully that gives you enough insight so you don't climb a cliff overlooking the sea and dramatically throw yourself into the waves below in a moment of grief. That, that would make me sad. I would be a little flattered, don't get me wrong, but that would make me sad. Okay, now I do have a special treat, because I know that's kind of heavy stuff. We got to do our palate cleanser, right? And since this is going to be our last one for a while, I am going to share with you my favorite joke of all time. Now, I will warn you, it's a little long, so bear with me. 
but I love this joke, and I hope you enjoy it too. So one day there's a man, typical average man, drives into work, gets there. Around lunchtime, he gets called into his boss's office, and the boss says, you know, hey, look, we'll call him Rick. Rick, I'm sorry. I've got to make some cutbacks, and even though you've done good work for us, I'm going to have to let you go. Well, Rick, Rick is devastated. He likes his job. He doesn't know what he's going to do to support his family. I mean, all the things that go through your mind when you run into the situation. And so, you know, he's, he's driving home. He pulls over and he stops and he, he, he cries a little, but he tries to compose himself before he gets home so he can explain to his wife, you know, what happened. And he, he wants to put together kind of a plan to let her know that things are going to be okay. So eventually, you know, he comes up with a rough idea. He's composed. He drives home, walks in the door, and the house is empty. There's nothing in there. Well, that's not true. There's a note taped to the wall in front of the door. He opens up the note and realizes his wife has found another man. She's been cheating on him for months. And she's, she's decided he's going to run away with this man. She took all their furniture, took all their money, and Rick is left with nothing but his dog. But when he goes out back to check on his dog, his dog is lying there dead. And so I, sounding like a country song, Rick just breaks down and he starts crying. And he's sitting there in the floor of his dining room where there used to be a nice table and chairs, a nice little old china hutch. I mean, he doesn't even have curtains on the windows at this point. He has been, I mean, that's the level his wife went to to wipe him out. And in utter frustration, he's sobbing, sitting there on the floor, and he goes, God, what do I do? I don't know what to do. This is too much. I can't handle this. God, I need your help. And miraculously, he hears a voice. And the voice says, Las Vegas. And he, he, he you know, he freezes in shock. And he goes, God, was, was that you? Did, did you say that? And again, he hears the voice, and it just goes, Las Vegas. And he goes, God, do you want me to, to go to Las Vegas? Is that what you're telling me? And again, the voice responds, Las Vegas. So, believing this is some form of divine intervention, he goes along with it. And he goes, and, you know, his wife cleaned out their checking account, but Rick had been smart enough. He kept his own little personal checking account. He had some personal credit cards as well. So he goes and he buys a plane ticket to Vegas. He flies, you know, he it leaves that night. He flies to Vegas. He gets off the airplane, and he says, God, now what do I do? And again, he hears a voice, casino. And Rick stands there a little confused, and he said, what, what did you say, God? 
Mm. Again, here's the voice. Casino. And, and, and you know, he's he's been raised as a Christian and he, you know, he's been taught that gambling's a sin. And so he's very confused. And he goes, God, are, are you wanting me to go gamble? Isn't that against your law? And the voice very clearly in Rick's head again goes, Casino. And having come this far, Rick says, okay, let's go to a casino. So he hits up the closest reputable looking casino to the hotel. And he goes inside and talking to himself like a fool from everybody else's perspective. Rick goes, okay, God, I'm here. What do I do? The voice goes, blackjack. And Rick says, you want me to play blackjack? The voice goes, blackjack. Rick says, God, I, I, I followed you here. I put faith in your word, but I don't have any money to gamble with. And the voice goes, savings account. He said, God, that's, that's basically all the money I've got left in this world. Are you sure? God goes, or the voice goes, savings account. And so, reluctantly, but trying to show faith, Rick walks over to an ATM, accesses the savings account, and pulls it all out. It's about seven or $8,000. And he starts to walk away, and he says, God, is this enough money? And he hears the voice again saying, plane ticket. And Rick goes, what, what do you mean? The voice goes, plane ticket. And Rick says, are, are you wanting me to sell my plane ticket home? And again, the voice just repeats, plane ticket. And Rick is getting nervous at this point. And he says, God, you know, this is my only way home. I have no more money. I am tapped out. I need this ticket to get home. But the voice responds in only one way. Plane ticket. Rick can hear the voice kind of getting annoyed or angry. And so he doesn't want to upset God. And so he goes and he cashes in his plane ticket for a few extra hundred dollars. And he walks over to the blackjack area and he sits down at a table. And he's praying the whole time. He said, God, I'm really counting on you. I'm really counting on you. I'm putting all my faith in you. You're my only hope. So the cards get dealt. Rick gets dealt. A queen face down and a five face up. Fifteen. He looks and the dealer's showing what could be seventeen. And Rick is nervous because, man, fifteen is not a good spot to be in in blackjack, you know? If he goes over twenty-one, that's it. He loses. And he's put all his money down on this one bet as God has requested or the voice has requested. 
So he says, okay, God, what do I do? And he hears the voice again. Hit. So Rick kind of nods solemnly and tells the dealer to hit. He gets dealt a three. He's now sitting at 18. And again, the dealer's showing 17. Maybe she has an ace under there. Could be a draw. Could be a tie. But Rick's feeling good now. 18. He's not going to lose all his money. He said, okay, God, we got this. I'm excited. Thank you. Thank you so much. And the voice speaks to him again and says, hit. And Rick goes, God, are, are you sure? The voice goes, hit. He goes, God, I, I, again, I don't question you, but I think we've won already. There's no reason to hit. But again, he hears, hit with anger. And so he does as the voice commands, and he tells the dealer, hit. And wouldn't you know it, Rick gets a two. He's sitting on 20. He's all but guaranteed a win. The only way he loses is if somehow the dealer has 21, but she's sitting at 17 or 18. She can't hit again. This is a guaranteed victory. And so Rick, tears start welling up in his eyes. He's going to double his money. He's so exciting. Thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you. And just as he's about to tell the dealer, you know, he's done, the voice goes, hit. And Rick sits up, shocked. And he goes, God, we're, we're at 20. We're going to win. The voice goes, hit. He goes, God, I've shown so much faith in you, but this... This makes no sense. We've won. Hit. And again, Rick just can't bring himself to do it. He's looking at a sure victory. There's no way he loses. But then he remembers if he can get a 21, he gets even more money. And God's led him this far. He's put so much faith into him. So knowing that the only way his situation can get better is to get an ace and knowing that if he gets anything other than that, he's dirt poor, he's broke, he has nothing to his, nothing to his name, Rick sheepishly hits. And it's such an unusual move that even the dealer says, "Hun, are you sure? And Rick said, yeah, yeah, hit me. Card comes out. It's a seven. Rick's busted. He's lost everything. And he's frozen in shock when he hears the voice. And the voice goes, damn it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is my favorite joke of all time. It's so long, it's so drawn out, and it's so stupid. It is perfection. So, 
with that, my lovelies, I'm going to sign off now. Shh. Don't say anything. I want to remember you just like this and your perfect beauty. I'll be back, but my people, well, my cats need me. If you ever feel lonely, please write to me. I might even respond. Until life allows me back on this path, I appreciate all of you for taking the time each week to listen to little old me. I love you all. I appreciate you all. You've impacted my life in a way I can't begin to describe. And I really can't wait until we're reunited. My lips to your ears. So please, 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 during the sabbatical, be good to yourself. Be good to other people. We need good people in this world. And I want y'all to do that. Okay? I love you all. Brad out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden. The podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.